Now we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, and we come now to chapter 16, the first 12 verses. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Let us pray together. Our Father, in this prayer of illumination, we would ask that the Holy Spirit will enable us to understand this text, to keep our minds and hearts focused upon it, and that we would have hearts that are willing to believe and repent, change and grow as Christians. We ask that we will love truth, having heard this sermon more than we have thus far, and that that love for your truth will increase as we are faithful members of your church. We ask also, Heavenly Father, that lost people among us today who do not know the Savior, whether they be old or young, rich or poor, no matter their sex, no matter their age, no matter their race, no matter their backgrounds, you have come, O Lord Jesus, to bring into your everlasting kingdom a people purchased by Christ's own blood from every tongue, tribe, nation, and kindred on earth. And we ask that there will never be a service in which some lost person does not come to Jesus. Please hear our prayer and answer it this morning, for we ask it in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came... And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, people of God, we have in this passage before us a solemn warning. And it is a solemn warning that is brought from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is a warning that is given to his disciples, but it is a warning that is for the entire church until Jesus comes again. We find that warning in verse 6. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And again, at the end of verse 11 and into 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
by which verse 12 tells us he means the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The first thing that I want you to see as we look at the text is that we find here a warning for the church. A warning for the church. Now, this is a warning that is given to the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These men who will be the apostles of the church, who will take the gospel throughout the world, who are the foundation upon which the church is built. Yes, Christ Jesus ultimately, but the truth that these men proclaim, for the Apostle Paul tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we have here a warning that is given to these men, these apostles, with continued relevance for the church of Jesus Christ today. Pharisees and Sadducees would soon disappear, but the teeth in the warning continues. Now, this shows us a couple of things. It shows us, first of all, that the most privileged people need warning. Here are these disciples. They walk with Jesus. They live with him. They hear his teaching. They see his miracles. And yet they needed warning. And you and I need warning as well. The best can err. The strongest can fall. We need to heed the warnings of sacred scripture. We need to take upon ourselves the full armor of God because we do not do battle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers of the air. And it also shows that ministers need warning most. These are men who are with Jesus learning, so to speak, to be preachers of the word. God had only one son and he made him a preacher and now he's training preachers and preachers and teachers are the ones who most need to take the warnings of scripture. We are the ones who are called to an office of teacher. We are to, with the power of the Holy Spirit applying, work these truths deep down into the hearts and lives of the people of God. We, the ministers, need these warnings most. We need your prayers that we will be faithful in doctrine faithful in life, that we will be spiritual men. And these disciples need to hear this warning. So this is first. We have here a warning not only given to the disciples then and there, but given to these men who are apostles upon whom we are built. And the theme continues in the church until Christ comes again. Second thing I want us to see is the warning itself. Now the warning is very simple. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 6, verse 12. Leaven, of course, we are told in verse 12 means the teaching. So who are these Pharisees? What must we watch out for? The Pharisees were self-righteous men. They were formalists. Their, their attitude toward the law of God was that it was keepable, and they added atop to the law of God all sorts of accretions. They trusted in their descent. We have Abraham as our father. They thought that they were saved by their connections and by their obedience. They were overly concerned with outward ceremony. You remember in chapter 15 what we read about them? Look back. Chapter 15, beginning with verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? 
He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leave the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The Pharisees were not concerned with the heart ultimately. They were concerned with externals. Now take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul has this to say about the Pharisaic spirit. Now, Paul the Apostle has been saying there is only one righteousness that saves, and that is the righteousness of Christ received by faith and imputed to our account. But that wasn't true of the Jews. He says in Romans 10, verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. Or to give another example of the spirit and attitude of these men, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And in Luke 18, where we have the parable regarding the importunate widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector, we are told in Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And as you read on, it's clear that he's speaking of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were those who denied justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They believed that their works contributed something to their redemption and to their salvation. All this while being theological conservatives and holding to the infallibility of the Scriptures. That's the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees, who were they? The Sadducees were the rationalists of their day. They were the religious liberals of their day, the modernists of their day. They valued the Pentateuch as Scripture, the first five books of Moses, but they denied the inspiration of the remainder of Scripture. They believed that there would be no future resurrection of the dead. They believed that there were no angels, that there was no spirit. Many of them were priests, of course, but they chipped away at revealed religion by their theological liberalism. So do you see why Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Thirdly, I want us to ask the question, how does this apply to us? Now, Jesus knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees would soon pass away, so why this warning? Because their essential attitudes will be with us until Christ comes again. These are the tendencies of the fallen human heart, especially in a religious setting. The church will contend with these attitudes until the end of the age, and we are to beware of these attitudes. Just think with me about lessons from church history regarding Pharisees. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension... The Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. The gospel is being preached. So was the church free from the attitude of the Pharisees? No. The Apostle Paul had to write the book of Galatians. Perhaps his first book 
against this attitude of the Pharisees in the church saying that we are saved by Jesus plus obedience to the law of Moses. Turn to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we find the church disturbed by this attitude soon after the ascension of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 15, we read in verse 1, this is the council at Jerusalem that brought together the leaders of the church to deal with this matter of how a man is accepted by God. Chapter 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This has been the great struggle in the church. Those who teach salvation by free grace and those who want to mingle grace with works. This was the issue between the Protestant reformers and Roman Catholicism in the medieval period. Today we have the new perspective on Paul that leads to the very same thing. It is a denial of Paul's doctrine of justification by grace through faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And again, not only that, But how often do we find in the church that formalism takes hold of a church? Now, we should be concerned with form. That's biblical. But when form becomes the whole thing, then we have deviated from the truth. Luke 12, 1 says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They became concerned with the external. They were not concerned with the heart. They ignore the heart before God. Now think about the history of the spirit of the Sadducees. Throughout church history we have faced that as well, and often these two things are actually mingled. This is the attitude of religious liberalism. We find it in the ancient church. No sooner does the church begin to preach Christ and Him crucified until someone says, yes, but Christ is not God. And they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They were called Arians. Along the way there developed Socinianism another anti-Trinitarian viewpoint. And then there came the view of limited inspiration, that yes, the Bible is inspired by God, but certain parts are more inspired than others, and there are errors in the Bible. Higher critical views of the Bible took hold. That was 19th and 20th century modernism that is now resurgent in the so-called emergent church today. So all of the old battles are still with us, my friends. The inspiration and authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of Holy Scripture, is now being jettisoned or so reinterpreted by some teachers in the church that it no longer has meaning. Men who ought to know better are denying the historicity of Adam. There are those who are denying, forthrightly, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and they are utilizing ancient heresies that have already been dealt with as a view of the atonement that should replace it. The eternal punishment of the wicked is denied. God's love is universalized so that now we are told everybody is going to be saved and all religions lead to God. And I do not exaggerate. These are the heresies that now find themselves in churches that call themselves evangelical. This and more. In both whether it's Pharisaism with its legalism, whether it's the Sadducee with his 
Theological liberalism in both, the cross with its merit and mercy, are discarded. And let me say, if you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved by what you do and what you perform. And you do need an authoritative Bible that tells you that Jesus Christ is only the Savior of sinners. He is God in the flesh. You need the merit of Christ. You need to see yourself as a lost, ruined, undone sinner and find your salvation completely in him. But when these attitudes, Phariseeism and Sadduceeism, take hold of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so distorted that it is no longer truly preached. And we are not obedient to the warning if we ignore these things. You know, the minister who speaks against these things, and by the way, to have a faithful ministry... It is necessary to say this is what we are for. It is necessary also to say sometimes this is what we are against. So the minister who stands against these things is considered obscurantist, unloving, old-fashioned, narrow-minded. So be it. As long as I am faithful to what God has called me to do and be as your minister. Now let's look at some passages. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew 7.15, the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, The Apostle Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 verse Hebrews 13.9, we are told, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The little epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now I only show those verses which could readily be multiplied to remind us how pervasively in the New Testament we are warned against false doctrine. And notice, as we apply this to ourselves, that the Lord Jesus calls their doctrine leaven. Now, why didn't he just say, beware of the teaching, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Why did he say the leaven? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Leaven is that yeast that is added to a lump of dough that seems so small, that seems so insignificant. You don't see it work, but it pervades the whole. And so false doctrine is insidious. What does it matter, they might have asked in the 4th century, whether we speak of Christ using the word homoousios or homoousios? After all, it's only the difference in one letter. 
But our whole salvation and the future of the church hung upon which word was used. For the one means of the same substance of God, which means that Christ is himself God. The other meant that he was simply like God, which was a denial of the deity of Christ. It all hung on one little letter, the Greek Yoda. And so John Murray is certainly right when he says that the difference between truth and error is often not a chasm, but a razor's edge. And often false doctrine is sophisticated and masks his truth and seems plausible. How is it that the mainline churches of our day are so thoroughly liberal theologically, the spirit of the Sadducees? How is it that the PCUS was so influenced by the theology of Karl Barth that has triumphed in their midst, it was because they used orthodox language without orthodox meaning. It all sounded the same. They talked about Christ, they talked about the Christian life, and the rank and file were taken in. It was not the gospel. Seminary students are sometimes asked to read N.T. Wright on justification when they've never read Buchanan or John Owen. They have no foundation for it. They don't know what they're doing and often are not given proper guidance. This is leaven. It works slowly in the church. And it works thoroughly in the church. So that when orthodox men stand up and say, this isn't right, it makes the orthodox man look as if he's the problem. It was true of Jesus. It was true of Paul. It was true of J. Gresham Machen. It was true of Charles Haddon Spurgeon who pulled his church out of the Baptist Union because of the downgrade, the liberalism in his denomination. And so Jesus says, beware, beware. That's his word. I didn't invent it. Beware, he says in verse 6. Beware, he says in verse 12. You know, speaking of Spurgeon, when the first article was published in the, the, the magazine that he edited, The Sword and the Trowel, against the liberalism of his denomination, the so-called downgrade, it showed a photograph of a sheer precipice. You get the point. This is where the church is headed if they follow this false teaching, if they follow this doctrine, and he was absolutely right. False teaching may look as appetizing as the fruit did to Eve, but it kills the soul. Rat poison, so I have been told, is 99% cornmeal. It's the 1% of arsenic that kills the rat. So it can be with false doctrine. Modern theology stems from an unregenerate heart. And we are to have no fellowship with it. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6. Now, the fourth thing I want you to see is the power of error and the power of truth. The power of error and the power of truth. Now, look here in verse 1 of chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So you see, they come to the Lord Jesus, and immediately they have rejected the light. There he is, the light of the world, standing before them, and they reject the light. They have a request for signs. Now, Jesus has been giving signs for those who have faith, but they have no faith. They are not regenerate men. They don't care about the truth, and they reject the light. 
We read on in verses 2 and 3. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. They are blind to the truth. They can read the signs relating to the weather, but they can't see the kingdom standing right in front of them. And then in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The darkness simply grows deeper. I'll only give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. That's the resurrection of Jesus we saw back in chapter 12 of Matthew. Rejecting that, they will show themselves to be more wicked than than the Ninevites. So do you see? They reject the light, they're blind to the light, and their darkness only grows deeper in their exchange with Jesus. Pharisees and Sadducees did not see themselves as lost men in need of grace. And that is the power of error. It confirms sinners more and more in darkness. You cannot play fast and loose with the truth and expect that it will have no influence upon your life, upon your church, or upon your culture. Now see the power of truth. We read in verse 5, the disciples reach the other side. They have forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves. So they began to say, what's this bread? What about this leaven? Oh, this must have something to do with the feeding of the 5,000. must have something to do with the feeding of the 4,000. Or the fact that we didn't bring bread with us. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? You see, they're very unimaginative. (laughs) No, 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 it doesn't have anything to do with that. That's, that's something we've already, we've already seen and already dealt with. No, no. He says in verse 11, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you see the difference? The Pharisees and Sadducees come and they're completely in darkness and they walk away in darkness. The Pharisees have little faith, the text tells us, but they had real faith. And as the texts move on, they have more light. Now that's the power of truth. You are drawn to see the light and then you grow in your understanding of the light. So when someone says to me, Pastor, I just don't have any concern about this. This this doesn't touch my life. Stop telling me about all of these doctrines. This just doesn't have anything to do with what kind of husband I am or what kind of a father I am or how I love my neighbor, just tell me about the Christian life. My friend, if Christian doctrine goes, there will be no Christian life. Because the Christian life is based upon the truth of the Word of God. The Christian life, Christianity is not just a life. As Machen said, it is, the Christian life is based upon a message. It's based upon truth. And when the truth goes, there will be no Christianity. There will be no Christian living. That's the power of error, the power of truth. Now the fifth point is this. Avoid false teaching with right teaching. Now J.C. Ryle published a paper on this text. And what I'm bringing to you at this point are his his suggestions 
to his own congregation. Um, Ryle suggests safeguards, certain truths, especially that we keep in mind, that we tighten our hold on leading truths as antidotes to the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What did Ryle suggest? He suggested that we lay hold on four doctrines preeminently in our minds. The first is the total corruption of human nature. Certain truths that we keep in mind, the first, the total corruption of the heart, that we justly deserve God's wrath and displeasure, because when we have wrong views there, we will have wrong views everywhere. We will begin to ascribe to human nature, to unregenerate men, light that they do not have. And everything from the atonement on will be altered. Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, because I think it's important that we remember what the Apostle Paul says will be true in the latter days. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5, he is addressing Timothy, this beloved young man called to the ministry that was Paul's protege. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says, beginning in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And certainly it is true that in our day, when we speak of the total corruption of human nature... You can fill churches, I'm putting it in quotes, you can fill huge buildings with people you flatter. People who will come and hear a Joel Osteen, if I just may be so bold. They are not hearing the gospel, they are not hearing the truth, they are not hearing the truth about human nature, about God, or about the gospel, and people love it. That's 2 Timothy 4. But preach that man is dead in trespasses and sins, incapable of life apart from the Holy Spirit's regenerating work, that we are totally depraved. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a heart into loving that truth and embracing it. The second truth that we are to embrace, the right teaching that will help to keep out false teaching, is the inspiration and authority of the Holy Scriptures. So imitate your Lord in reverence for the Holy Scriptures who said the Scripture cannot be broken. I utterly trust this book, I want you to know. I utterly trust this book because I trust its author. I have sat under the best of those who have denied this book in academic training. I have. And I am totally unimpressed because the issue is not the facts, though they present it that way, It is the interpretation of the facts from a sinful or regenerate heart. Believe the Word of God. One of the old ministers preached a sermon entitled, The Bible, My Critic. 
I am not to stand as a critic over the Bible. The Bible stands as a critic over me. We heard this morning from Mike Carter, read your Bible from cover to cover this year and next year and next and next. Get into the Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to change and challenge your heart. Open your heart that you may confess your sins and see yourself to be the needy sinner you are. Study it. Read your Bible. Because it is not intellectual honesty when a man says, I don't believe the Bible because I have problems with it. John 8, turn there. John's Gospel, the 8th chapter. The Lord Jesus, again, addressing these Jewish leaders. We'll just read two verses. John eight forty three. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And again in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The third doctrine to keep always front and center, to help guard you from the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, is the atonement and priestly office of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That Christ came into this world, God in the flesh, that he offered himself up to satisfy divine justice as a substitute and sacrifice for sinners, is always the core concern. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Here alone is forgiveness of sins. Here alone is their peace of conscience. And John Owen the Puritan was right when he said, the one point Satan wishes to overthrow more than any other is the priestly office of Christ. And so the one point that we should preach and proclaim more than any other is the priestly office of Christ. Christ our sacrifice and Christ our intercessor. And then... The fifth doctrine to keep in mind is the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when He works, there will be fruit. When He works, there is new creation. When the Spirit of God is at work, lives change. Oh, do you see your dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Do you know that you need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God to be at work continually in your life to grow and sanctify you and change you and to take you home? Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot get out of the church what is not in it. We must be a living church for a living work. So these are the four great safeguards against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, says Mr. Ryle, and I completely agree with him, the total corruption of human nature, the inspiration and authority of the Holy Scriptures, the atonement and priestly office of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Wednesday night in Vespers, we've been working through 2 Kings. And last week, I took the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And at the end of the text that I had expounded, I read to them that portion of the Pilgrim's Progress in which, during, in that allegory, uh, Pilgrim and Hope, Christian and Hopeful, see the delectable mountains. And one of, the, one of the mountains, as they make their way through, they make their way on to the Hill Error, the hill called Error. And they are told to look down, and they look down, and they see mangled bodies that have been left there as examples to us as we go on in our pilgrimage to the heavenly city. Don't expose your heart to error. 
Don't expose yourself to secular people that you think are neutral. There is no neutrality. Don't do that. Don't expose yourself to their teaching. I'm not saying that you don't study it critically when it's necessary. That's not my point at all. Don't open your heart to error. Don't think that you can sit in front of a secular counselor and it's neutral. Don't think that you can sit under a professor who believes these things and it's neutral. It's not neutral. They don't know who God is. They don't know who man is. They don't know what, know what man's need is. It's error. The hill error is very steep on the far side, says Bunyan. You look down and you'll see the results of those who slip off the precipice from the hill error. Let me draw conclusions. Now think of these almost as bullet points. Let me give you several conclusions. The first conclusion is, do not be taken in by deceivers. Don't we need to hear that in the church today? Don't be taken in by deceptive teachers and deceptive doctrines. Don't be taken in. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15, the apostle says, And what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Oh, we're just like Paul. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, And look at verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Don't be taken in. Even though they look like angels of light and speak with smooth words. Next bullet point, keep your heart warm and passionate for the truth. And in so doing, do not minimize or toy with false teaching or false doctrine. The next bullet point requires that you turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. That's the little book just before Revelation. And in Jude, verse 3... We read, Jude verse 3, Behold, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the old King James Version says, Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, and that's really a better translation because... Before agonizomai, there is an intensifying preposition. So, apa is added to the verb, and the intensification could readily be translated, earnestly contend for the faith. And so that's our calling, especially those who are teachers and preachers, but all of God's people are called to earnestly contend for the faith. Because you see, all of this comes from a reverencing of the Word of God. Let us read the Word. Let us diligently scatter the seed and extend the truth. 
People do not like the pure word of God because it tells them that outside of Christ they will be lost forever. But that is what is needed. Speak to others about the good news of Jesus. Share the word of the gospel with them. Leave a track for someone to read. Invite them to come and hear the gospel in our services of worship. And in the name of God, people, stand fast. Stand in this dark, dark day when the air is stale of error. Stand fast. Hold to the old paths. Willingly bear Christ's reproach. And do not enter into union with the world. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now listen to these words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Sermon preached in 1888 from a text in Genesis. He says... The moment the church says, I will be as the world, she has doomed herself with the world. Why is false doctrine so rampant in the churches? It is because we have ungodly people in the church and in the ministry. Eagerness for numbers, and especially eagerness to include respectable people, has adulterated many churches and made them lax in doctrine and practice and fond of silly amusements. We beseech the people of God to mark that there is no need to try doubtful expedients and questionable methods. God will say by the gospel still, only let it be the gospel in its purity. And then he says, When we lie a-dying, if we have faithfully preached the gospel, our conscience will not accuse us for having kept closely to it. We shall not mourn that we did not play the fool or the politician in order to increase our congregation. Keep to the simple gospel. And if the people are not converted by it, you will be clear. William Rushton, one of the great old ministers, said, Every attempt to render the gospel more acceptable to men... By softening down any of its offensive doctrines is itself an act of conformity to the world in the very worst form. I'm going to read that again because I think we need to hear it. Every attempt to render the gospel more acceptable to men by softening down any of its offensive doctrines is itself an act of conformity to the world in the very worst form. So keep... To the simple gospel, have a heart submissive to the word of God. Now turn to Isaiah 66, and this verse will conclude our sermon. Isaiah 66. The second portion of verse 2, Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the great need of every Christian. That is the great need of every church. That is why the church is rife with error today. 
because we no longer tremble at God's word. But may we tremble and obey the word of the Lord. And God's people said,